here at 538 don't pretend to be the best of home chefs, but since quarantine began, the number of culinary experiments performed in 538 kitchens seems to have grown. So this week, I asked the staff, what's the weirdest thing you or your loved ones have cooked in recent weeks that turned out surprisingly well? One of our sports writers said Nathan's hot dogs with kimchi radish and black garlic. Also on Team Kimchi was our social editor, who made kimchi quesadillas. Our animator made a pizza topped with oranges, basil, garlic, and truffle cheese. One of our reporters said she made homemade vegan sausages that tasted great, but looked, in her words, scatological. Weirdest of all, one of our copy editors said that in her house, they're experimenting with fruit in mac and cheese. The raspberry white cheddar balsamic concoction was surprisingly good. The cherry fennel orange cheese version, not so much. Why did my colleagues decide to make these novel dishes? Was it just to use up ingredients in their houses before making another trip to the grocery store? Or is there something about this moment in time that's made unlikely food pairings sound delicious? I'm really not sure. All I can say is that I saw a photo of a Pizza Hut abomination from a few years ago that had pigs in a blanket instead of a crust. And it might just be the quarantine talking, but right now... That thing looked freaking delicious. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. This week, we're going to talk about a drug that scientists in the UK claim can dramatically reduce deaths in COVID patients. But first, the world is waiting for a vaccine against COVID-19. And researchers around the globe are working as quickly as they can to produce a safe and effective vaccine within 12 to 18 months. But what happens once we make a vaccine? How quickly can we get it out to the masses? And who will get that vaccine first? Joining me to talk about it is Lois Prevordum. She's the Director of Policy Advocacy and Communications at the International Vaccine Access Center at Johns Hopkins University. How do we decide who are the first people to get this vaccine, thinking specifically about a disease like COVID? The CDC convenes a group called the ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. So in past pandemics, it's this group of experts that comes together and determines what are the priorities for allocation. It's not an easy question about thinking about who do you immunize first, because some people will want to be immunized and other people also want to be immunized, but there's not enough doses to go around. And this is a situation that we may run into for COVID. There's a certain number of doses. Generally, they look to immunizing uh, healthcare workers first. This is similar to the distribution model that the CDC used during the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic. And healthcare workers would be some of the easiest people to vaccinate. They presumably would be very open to getting the vaccine, and they work in a place where vaccines are easily deliverable. So what that could mean is in the U.S., it's, I believe, over 20 million health workers that are uh, are out there. And then it could be something that's even higher than that, depending on how you define who you're going to immunize and who is at greatest risk. 
Each disease also hits different age groups differently. So in some cases, you may want to protect children, but in other cases, you may want to put your focus on older adults. So older adults seem to be hit more severely with the disease than uh, than the childhood group. So they may be prioritized differently. There's also a consideration of you know, who needs to be in frontline positions. In other words, essential workers, like people in agriculture, firefighters, grocery store workers, and so on, might be among the first to be immunized. So how many doses will we actually have for that first wave of immunizations? That will depend a lot on what types of manufacturing arrangements have been set out ahead of time. And different vaccines have different speeds of manufacture. So they're uh, some are capable of being scaled up really quickly, while some of the newer technologies may be slower to be able to scale up. What they're doing right now is they're manufacturing a number of doses at risk. And this becomes particularly important if the vaccine that's finally able to make it to the, the goalpost, if that vaccine takes a long time to manufacture, you want to make sure that those doses are there to at least immunize uh, health workers, the people that are coming in contact with the most severe COVID patients. Lois means that manufacturers are beginning to ramp up large-scale production even before scientists have proven the vaccine is safe and effective. Some of these distribution and manufacturing questions will be answered by which types of vaccines are developed and how well they work in a particular location. I mean, I know that a lot of the vaccines that are currently being investigated are some of these newer technologies, including mRNA vaccines, which we've never actually released an mRNA vaccine to the public. They work in experimental capacities, right? But we've never actually licensed one. Do you anticipate there being any problems with manufacturers being able to sort of scale up production of any of these vaccines? Well, they're working on them right now. So they're starting to produce them. And it's it's absolutely correct that they are new technologies. So there's a lot of unknowns. And it's a big difference to be able to produce enough doses for uh, clinical studies, because then you're generally starting with, you know, thousands or, or you know, tens of thousands of, do- of doses to being able to scale up on a massive level. So once you start to get into the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, or even billions of doses, and, and that's one of the big unknowns here is how many doses of vaccine will we actually need? There's a big difference between a hundred million doses and a billion doses. Now we don't expect that any single manufacturer is going to meet the needs of every country in the world. It will likely be multiple manufacturers and multiple vaccines that meet the needs of different populations. Certain COVID vaccines might be easier to transport or store, which could be helpful in remote places or places with limited refrigeration. Also, different people might need different COVID vaccines. Older people, for example, might need a vaccine that stimulates their immune system differently than younger people. Of course, right now, we haven't yet licensed any COVID vaccines, but we're already seeing variations in the efficacy of the vaccines in clinical trials. So there's new evidence with the Oxford vaccine 
that is suggesting that it is going to prevent severe disease, but it might not block the infection to begin with. And that's something that you know makes uh, makes certain vaccines more attractive than other vaccines. So let's say that it only works fifty percent of the time. You know, is that still a vaccine that we want to use? And I think the answer is, as long as it's proven safe, the answer is probably yes. You know, blocking fifty percent of disease is much better than doing nothing. And particularly when the risk is, if you look at the other end, is is hospitalizations, going on ventilators, or even worse, is thinking about the long term effects. Something that we still don't understand. But if you get the disease and then you're um, then you're more frail than when you were before the disease, or have continued conditions that need to be treated, that's a concern. You know, that's a continued thing that you're going to have for the rest of your life and a burden on the health system as well. There is precedent for giving a vaccine that might not prevent infection in everyone who gets it. With the flu vaccine, for example, some people who get immunized still get sick, but they may nonetheless have better health outcomes in the long term. So once you recover from a, a severe episode of influenza, for example, there's also the risk of heart attack and stroke that increase because um, like if, if you're not vaccinated, then you'll have a higher risk of heart attack and stroke. And that's pretty serious. So if you can reduce your risk, there's still value in giving those vaccines. Another big question right now is whether the vaccines currently under investigation will require multiple doses. We also don't know how often you'd need to get re-immunized. With other diseases that require multiple doses, how have distributors and physicians actually ensured that people come back? And what is, is there any sort of standard idea of how many people actually will come back to get a second or third dose of a vaccine? Yeah, so we do have some experience with influenza vaccines, because that's an example of a vaccine where people do need to come back every year. And it's variable. It depends on who you're talking about, what they perceive as their risk of getting the disease, and whether they're able to make it back. So there's a convenience factor here. This is a particular concern for uh, workers that may be at higher risk. So maybe they're frontline workers and they're worried about, you know, just making it to their jobs and a question of can they even take off work to be able to get the vaccine. So we'll need to be thinking uh, creatively and differently about who supplies vaccine. Do they make it a requirement to be able to work, you know, to be able to be protected. And a lot of these requirements will come, uh, there will be different requirements state by state, and there will be different ways that private businesses approach, you know, who should be vaccinated and what they require. We generally, um, one of the things that, uh, that happens is there's mandates in childhood po- populations for certain vaccines But as you get older and as adults, it's very difficult to say you must do something. And we also need to consider that 
there's there's actually hesitancy amongst the population as to whether the vaccine is even right. So there's been a number of surveys that have been done in in the U.S. population in particular that have shown that about half the population thinks that they would get the vaccine. And then there's a percentage of the population that said that they would definitely not get the vaccine. So one survey showed about one in five people said that they wouldn't get a vaccine, even if COVID-19 was still still circulating. So that shows that you have uh, concerns about you know what this vaccine will do, whether it's something that's that's needed or whether it's convenient. There's a lot of reasons why people do or don't get vaccines. Right. Is the method of delivery um, something that can help uh, ensure that the vaccine is more accessible? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, vaccines are, are given generally by injection which a lot of people don't love. And it, it's not always convenient to be able to go to a doctor's office, get that injection. Fortunately, during the last pandemic, some of those um, requirements of going to a doctor's office changed. It opened up more options. So now pharmacists are able to give vaccines in um, in in the States. And it does vary by state who is able to give a vaccine, but convenience is something that is addressed more often. The next step is to figure out how can these vaccines potentially be self-administered or can you make it easier for somebody to go and get their vaccine? You know, how do you bring vaccines to people rather than having people have to go and get it? And so there's a lot of conversation about what are those possibilities. Now, of course, that requires engagement of local health departments because these are, we have to remember that vaccines are regulated and that, you know, we can't just come up with these great solutions without having some level of control and being able to measure, you know, does this really work? Does, can we do this without additional harm? Now, I hope that, you know, my, my dream vaccine is is something that is you know perhaps a skin patch that you can put on your arm and that could be self-administered and mailed to you those are in development they're probably many years away but that's the next generation of technologies that we need to really be looking for to to make vaccines accessible to everybody around the world that would be amazing it would be it would be and it would also solve it would also solve a lot of um, issues about, you know, vaccines also require cold storage. They require space. They require a lot of coordination. So if you can get something that is stable, that is has very low risk of, of side effects or uh, errors in the way that you administer it, that would really be a game changer. Another reason people might not get a COVID vaccine is if it were too expensive. At the end of the day, vaccine manufacturers need to make money. And so I'm wondering about financially how they actually support distribution both in the United States and around the world when there are a lot of people globally, but also here in the U.S., who 
frankly do not have the money to pay for this thing. Yeah, so so there's a, there's a few things here that we can unpack. So the first is the the premise and the assumption that we need to make money. And different manufacturers have taken different approaches to this. But one thing that is in common is that uh that's unique from other vaccines that we've seen in the past is that there is an openness amongst manufacturers to consider what is the global need. I understand that the premise that vaccine manufacturers need to make big bucks is not what we're talking about, but they presumably, just like any company, need to at least recoup the costs for their employees' labor and buying all of the supplies they need and that sort of thing. And I'm just wondering if countries are uh, helping to subsidize those costs for manufacturers. There's a number of places where the money is coming from. So if you consider the NIH that invests in uh, various so national institutes of health that invests in various companies to be able to do some of the research. And there's um, investments from a group called CEPI. CEPI is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, whose mission is to stimulate and accelerate the development of vaccines against emerging infectious diseases. CEPI is an organization that has come together to figure out how do we accelerate these vaccines and how do we put money into manufacturing? How do we ensure that there's investments? So one of the biggest um, challenges that's that governments are thinking about is how can we produce vaccine at risk? Normally, you're not going to set up your you know, large-scale manufacturing capacity until the very end. But what's unique about this pandemic is that there's been a lot of effort to invest in manufacturers to produce large volumes of doses at risk. Again, when we're talking about doses at risk, we mean that manufacturers are investing money up front to make doses of a vaccine before it's even been licensed by the FDA. Doing so means that companies might lose money if the vaccine ends up failing in clinical trials, but it ensures that doses would be available the minute it's proven safe and effective. Of course, just because a drug is available doesn't mean regular Americans are always able to pay for it. So there is a commitment to make sure that this is this is something that would be free of charge. You never want to have a, a vaccine or something so important like this that that price becomes or the cost of the vaccine becomes a, a variable in whether people get it or not. But there are some other things that also need to be considered in that it's not just the cost of the vaccine itself. You have to make sure that people have a way to go and get the vaccine and that they're not seeing that that's a barrier. Right. Yeah, I, I know one thing that's I've heard recently repeated is the idea that, you know, we're going to get to a place where it's only like the richest, most privileged people who are going to be able to get early access to this. So that would be a disaster because it's 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 not people like you and I that can social distance that have options. We're worried about the people that need to be out there that are putting themselves at risk every day to make sure that this nation continues to function. And they're also the people that are less likely to have access to health care. So they may not be as healthy going in or you know have disease that's well controlled. 
And the last thing you want is for you know that population to fall through the cracks. Well, Lois, I'm so grateful that you took the time to speak with me today. I learned so much this morning. Thank you. Well, it was really great talking to you. You had some great questions and it was a lot of fun. And now for a little good news. This week, scientists at the University of Oxford announced that they'd found that a common and affordable steroid called dexamethasone could radically reduce the number of deaths from COVID. Reportedly, the drug reduced deaths in patients on oxygen by one-fifth, and deaths in patients on ventilators by a third. Here's one of the researchers, Peter Hornby, speaking at a press conference this week via the Associated Press. It really is showing quite a significant effect. Um, And it's really important because the drug itself is very widely available. It's on almost every pharmacy shelf in every hospital. It's available throughout the world and it's extremely cheap. So we've looked at the numbers and if we treat eight patients in intensive care with this drug, um, we'll save one life. And the total cost of treating all eight patients is only about 40 pounds. For some context, 40 pounds is about 50 bucks. It makes sense that a drug like this might have some effect. We know that COVID-19 can cause inflammation throughout the body in some patients, and steroids like dexamethasone can act as an anti-inflammatory. But before we get too excited, it's important to note that this research hasn't even been published yet. At the time of this recording, we've only seen a press release about the study. There isn't even a preprint, which is a formal article that hasn't yet gone through peer review. If you listened to last week's podcast, you know that in this moment where the scientific community is rushing to find treatments for COVID, some of the checks on good science have been slipping through the cracks. There have been a number of high-profile retractions of papers that swayed COVID studies and policy decisions before they were withdrawn. Without the peer-reviewed paper and the data, it's hard to know how seriously to take this news. But the idea that we could save lives with a common, cheap drug is so encouraging that I understand why scientists, politicians, and even journalists like me would be tempted to pin their hopes on dexamethasone. After all, if this drug does work as well as the scientists claim, it would be a huge relief for healthcare workers, patients, and the people who love them. So here's hoping. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Chad hasn't cooked anything weird during quarantine because he says he has very strict rules about what time certain foods should be eaten. No eggs after noon. No sandwiches for dinner. And no, he says, a hot dog is not a sandwich. Maybe kimchi radish and black garlic would change his mind, though.